Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. U.S. stocks closed out the week and the month of May with heavy losses. The Dow Jones Industrials down just over 350 points, 354 spot 84, pretty much going out near the low of the day. That's a drop of 1.4%. NASDAQ also getting killed better than 100 points down, a 114 spot 57. That was a 1.5% decline on the day. The Russell 2000 continues to melt down. That index falling 20 points, down 1.35% on the day. But the biggest losses continue to be in the Dow Jones transports. That index was down almost 2%, 1.9%, 188.4 points. You know, this is the worst May for U.S. stocks since 2010. The Dow is down about 7%. Just in a month of May. Remember, sell in May and go away. Well, it hasn't worked in a while, but this was a great time to sell May 1st, uh, which again is about when I told everybody that I thought the bear market rally was over based on the Fed not being as dovish as the markets expected. And it's been downhill from there. You know, if you look at the, the Russell 2000 and the transports, these two indexes did not make new highs. Remember, the Dow and the S&P, NASDAQ made new highs. Now, they're all down considerably. The Dow is 8% off those highs now. But the Russell 2000 and the transports did not make new highs. And now they are the weakest indexes. And they're down. The Russell 2000 is down just under 16% from its peak. And the transports over 16%. So both of those indexes are about four percentage points away from being officially back in bear market territory, which is down 20% uh, you know, from the highs. And we could easily be there next week on, on these stocks. Now, the other indexes have further to go. I mean, the, the NASDAQ is only down about 9% from its peak. So 1% away from what Wall Street would officially call a correction. The uh, retailers continue to also be hammered. You know, the, the debacle du jour was Gap, which gapped down by about 15% on the day on weaker than expected sales. The stock managed to rally most of the day, so it only closed down a little over 9%, but still it closed better than 47% below 
its 52-week high. But, you know, when you have the Russell 2000 and the transports, the weakest part of the market, those are the most domestically focused stocks, right? And those are the stocks that are the weakest. So everybody who keeps talking about how great the U.S. economy is, if they look at the market, the market is telling you a different story. It's the stocks that are most sensitive to the U.S. economy that are the weakest. But, you know, the biggest moves today really were in the bond market. Yields continue to plunge in the Treasury bond market, particularly on the shorter end. The yield on the three-month is at 2.34%. But going out to one year, the yield on the one-year Treasury is down at 2.2. The two-year is all the way down at one spot nine two. And that's pretty much exactly where the five-year is. So you got a flat yield curve now between the twos and the fives at 1.92. The 10-year yield is all the way down to two spot one three. So it's a little bit higher. You don't have an inversion between the two and the 10 and the two and the five, but you certainly have an inversion uh, uh, when you go to the three-month and the six-month uh, and the and the one year, but we're down to 2.13. But on the 30-year, yield's dropping, but we're at 2.57. But if you look at that spread, the yield curve has actually been steepening now between the 10-year and the 30-year. You know, that's a forecast that I actually got right on this podcast. I forget which podcast it was, but the spread between the 10-year and the 30-year was extremely narrow. I mean, they were almost practically the same yield. I mean, not quite, but they were very, very close. And I remember saying that that is kind of ridiculous. And I thought the smart trade would be to sell the 30-year and buy the 10-year because I believed that that spread would widen. Now, I think at the time, I thought it would widen as rates went up. I thought the rates on the 30-year would go up more than the rates on the 10-year. Instead, the rates came down, but they came down more on the 10-year than they did on the 30-year. And so when you're at a spread, right, it doesn't matter which direction the markets move. It, it matters on which direction the spread moves. And so if the spread widens, it doesn't matter if it's with rates moving up or rates moving down. If you put the spread on and you're betting on it widening, then you make money. And that was a pretty uh, pretty good call because that's what's happened, even if it didn't happen the way I expected to. Although ultimately, that's what I do believe is going to happen. Ultimately, interest rates are going way up. Because as I said on the last podcast, the markets, right, the traders who are betting on lower interest rates, they are betting on recession, and that is the right bet. Anybody who is buying bonds because they think a recession is coming is right to believe that a recession is coming. And they're also right to believe that the Fed will cut interest rates to try to stimulate the economy during that recession. That is the reason that everybody is buying bonds because they are trying to front run the Fed. They are anticipating what the Fed is going to do. And it's only because the Fed has always done this in the past and because the Fed is indicating that they will do this in the future, uh, then uh, people are trying to buy the bonds. What they don't get is that it's not going to work because we're going to have stagflation. We're going to have recession and inflation at the same time. And that is the worst environment for bonds. And in fact, just yesterday, uh, Clarita came out from the Fed and he actually outlined what the criteria would be for the Fed to cut rates, right? Basically, didn't say anything. I mean, rate hikes are totally off the table, right? So the only thing is, is the Fed going to stay pat or is the Fed going to cut? And basically, the criteria was 
a weakening global economy, not even a weakening U.S. economy, just a weakening global economy that potentially could spread to the U.S. So in other words, he left this wide open to cut rates. And he said, if inflation is below our 2% target, which of course it is the way they measure it. Uh, so basically, Clarita came out and said, we're going to cut rates. I mean, that's the only reason that the Fed is opening the door to a rate cut is because now uh, they know that they're going to cross the threshold. You know, that's the point. They wouldn't have opened the door unless they were prepared to walk through it. That's why if you look at the odds now of a rate cut in September, it's now about 80% probability of a 50 basis point cut in September. Not 25 basis points, but 50 basis points. And in fact, Barclays came out today and said, not only do they expect a 50 basis point rate cut in September, but they expect the Fed to follow that up with a 25 basis point rate hike sometime between then and the end of this year. So they're looking for 75 basis points of cuts. Oh, by the way, while I'm talking about uh, European banks, Deutsche Bank, you know, the canary in the coal mine that I've been talking about, continues to melt down, down another 2% today, 14 cents, $6.77. Uh, the low intraday was 673. This is an all-time record low for that stock, but indicative of major problems, not only at that bank, but in the banking sector in general. But if you look at the consensus now, right, everybody believes that the Fed is going to cut rates, right, uh, now. But go back to November, December of last year, before the last rate hike. Everybody believed that not only would the Fed hike rates in December, but that there would be three or four more rate hikes in 2019. And the only one that has been on financial television that said that that wasn't going to happen was me. And I only actually said it on one show because there's only one show that will have me on and at least one major show, and that's Liz Clayman's show, Countdown to the Closing Bell on Fox Business. And in fact, Liz gave me a shout out today on her program. She said, hey, we got to you know, give it to Peter Schiff because he's the guy that said the Fed would have no choice but to cut rates in 2019. But actually, I said it even better than that. I was uh, on the show, and you can see this on my YouTube channel. And Liz Clayman said to me, Peter, what do you think the Fed's going to do uh, at this December meeting, which was less than a week away? And my answer was, you know, it doesn't really matter what they do. They're probably going to hike because everybody expects a hike. But I said, this hike is immaterial because I said, even if they hike rates in December, that is the last rate hike that we're going to get. That the very next thing the Fed is going to do after they hike rates in December is to cut rates. And nobody believed that was going to happen. Everybody believed that more rate hikes were coming. And I said, no, there's only, this is it. This is the last one. And then they're going to be cutting rates. And now that is the consensus view. And it's clear that that is going to happen. So I got that right. And nobody else got it right on a major financial network other than me. And the only show that had somebody get it right was Liz Clayman's Countdown to the Closing Bell. Uh, and by the way, I will be on her show again on Tuesday. She wanted me to come on on Monday, but I had a dentist appointment, so I couldn't make it. But I will do it on Tuesday in studio in New York. And, uh, and so I'll be able to talk again about this. And it looks like, you know, she's the only 
uh, person that continues to have me on. Although, look, I still, I was on RT, you know, Russia Today, yesterday with Rick Sanchez. You know, I put that up on my uh, YouTube channel as well. But I'm not getting on the major financial networks other than than Liz's show. And, you know, her show, actually, I've, she's got the number one uh, rated show on that time slot. I think she's the number one business a female business anchor on television. So it's a good show to be on if I'm only going to be on one. But it's an interesting point that nobody else saw this coming. And it's because they don't understand the problem. And they still don't get it. It's not just that the Fed's cutting 50 basis points or 25 basis points. They're cutting 225 basis points. We are going all the way to zero. And the problem is there's not a lot of room between where we are and zero. And so it's not going to provide a lot of stimulus. So the real story is going to be QE4 and how enormous it is and how it is going to be delivered. The action, of course, not just limited to stocks and bonds. Oil continues to get beaten up. Oil down another $3.28. We're all the way back down to $53 uh, a barrel for the price of oil. So the markets are starting to price in not just a U.S. recession, but a global recession. And so they think that the demand for oil is going to fall. The dollar, though, fell a little bit today. The dollar index was down about spot 3.8. And some of the um, uh, emerging market currencies, the Brazilian real actually up 1.5%. Uh, today in contrast to the sharp fall in the Mexican peso, and I will talk about that momentarily. But the dollar lost ground against the yen, the euro, the Swiss franc, and a lot of other currencies today. And maybe this is the beginning of a much bigger move that is long overdue because everything that is happening right now is very bearish for the dollar. It's just that people haven't figured that out yet because they're still underestimating the weakness of the U.S. economy. The economy is much weaker than people think. We are going into recession. The rate cuts are not going to work, and it's not going to be a mild recession. It's going to be worse than the Great Recession of 2008-2009. But the other big mover was in the gold market. Gold had a nice rally today, up almost $17 an ounce, closing at 1305 back above 1300 You know, last week, Gold closed at a two-week low. This week, it's closing at a three-week high. But still, haven't broken out. We need to get above 1350, 1360. But we could be up there very quickly, especially if we continue this meltdown in the stock market. And if the dollar accelerates the downside and really begins to lose value, then this whole strong U.S. dollar, U.S. economy uh, narrative is going to unravel. And a lot of people are going to be moving into gold that should have been moving into gold uh, for quite some time, but they just hadn't figured it out yet. But I got to talk about the catalyst for today's decline. Now, the market probably would have gone down anyway. Uh, It's just looking for an excuse. Again, this is a bear market. The bear market rally, the correction is over. And so we're headed back down to the lows. So it doesn't really matter. The markets are just looking for a reason to go down. Uh, But the reason today was some late-night tweets put out by Donald Trump. Last night, I think it was around 7.38, I was having dinner, and it was my son, Spencer, who I know a lot of you guys have been following him on Twitter. You know, he changed his handle to uh, Shift Spencer. Uh, You can see a picture of him there at the New York Stock Exchange where he went down uh, and took a tour of the New York Stock Exchange. But he pointed out this tweet to me, Uh, Basically, Trump said that he is going to impose tariffs now on goods coming in from Mexico across the board, 
all goods, 5%. And that 5% tariff is going to go into effect, I think it's uh, like June 10th or something like that. So in a couple of weeks or less than two weeks. And then he's going to increase the tariffs on a kind of like a, a, a regular basis by, I think, 5% a month or something like that until they get up to 25%, which is going to happen pretty quickly, all until Mexico does something about the immigration problem. He didn't really specify what they have to do. He just said, look, you guys have to do something, and if I think what you do is good enough, well, then I'll take away the tariffs. But until you satisfy me, until I'm satisfied that you're doing enough about this immigration problem and people illegally crossing the border, then we're going to keep on slapping these tariffs. And he decided to put these tweets out. Now, I don't know if this is just kind of off the cuff, if he just thought it up as he was tweeting it, or if he actually had some kind of policy. And then, you know, finally, when it was fully done, he, he put out these tweets. But, you know, it was just a couple of days ago, I forget, when I saw Donald Trump at a press conference again, congratulating himself for negotiating the greatest trade deal in the history of trade deals, the USMCA, right? And M stands for Mexico. I mean, maybe Donald Trump doesn't realize that when you have a trade deal, right, with another country, you can't go slap tariffs on them. That's the purpose of the trade deal, right? There are no extra tariffs. That would be violating the deal. Now, I know the deal hasn't been ratified yet, but If Trump says this is the greatest deal ever negotiated, why does he want to toss it aside? Why does he want to jeopardize it? I mean, did he finally realize that it's just a NAFTA rebrand and he's been lying to the American public the whole time? I mean, I don't know about that. But if this deal is so great, he just blew it away, right? Because obviously there's no deal now. I mean, Mexico hasn't even approved it yet. How are they going to approve it now? I mean, it's that they're going to want to retaliate against us. So that that whole agreement, we wasted all of our time. We wasted all of our money uh, during uh, during these negotiations. You know, it's a good thing, too, that, uh, you know, the guys negotiating were from North Korea. I was just reading that article where the, the whole delegation uh, that negotiated with Trump on those treaties was executed. You know, it was kind of like, you know, I was reading it. I was thinking about um, Spectre. You know, from James Bond, where, you know, if you screw up, they kill you. Well, apparently that's what's going on. They don't like the results. If you don't negotiate a good deal uh, in North Korea, then, you know, then that's it. I don't know how uh, they're going to find another delegation uh, for for any kind of uh, talks. I mean, who's going to I mean, who's going to who's going to want to, you know, um, be a, a part of a delegation if they know that those are the stakes. But getting back to this. So Donald Trump is just basically throwing this whole thing away. We wasted all of our time. We wasted all of our money. The deal is off because now Trump wants to put tariffs on on these goods coming in from Mexico. And I was listening on CNBC. Peter Navarro was on trying to tell the CNBC audience that all these experts don't know what they're talking about when they say the American consumers are going to pay for the tariffs, right? He was basically trying to explain why American consumers weren't going to have to pay anything, that all of the tariffs were going to be paid by China and Mexico, right? So Mexico is going to pay for these tariffs just like they're going to pay for the wall, right? Well, that's a true statement because they're not paying for the wall and they're not paying for the tariffs. But according to Peter uh, Navarro, they are. And this is his rationale because obviously he concedes that the tariff itself is paid in the U.S., right, that the, the tariff is applied on the goods here. The importer, the American importer, 
has to pay the tariff, and then he passes the tariffs on to the U.S. consumer. But this is what Nataro said is going to happen, that Mexico and China are simply going to cut their prices by the amount of the tariffs. So let's say they were selling a $100 item, and with a 25% tariff, it would sell for $125. Well, they're going to cut the price to $80, right, from $100. So now you can apply a 25% tariff, and it would be $100, right? So basically, they're going to lower the price so that when the American consumer has to pay the tariff, he's paying it on top of a much lower price than what he paid before, so that the net effect is that the American consumer sees no increase in the price, that all of the cost of the tariff is borne by the producers in China and Mexico who simply eat it, right? They're just so anxious to have the American market that they don't even care if they lose money selling to us. I mean, what if their margins aren't even 20%? What if they were operating on a 15% margin? They're still going to cut prices, uh, you know, by the 20% or whatever it is to make Americans whole. I mean, this is all nonsense. I mean, if this were true, right? Because what a Navarro is basically saying is that tariffs are a windfall to the nation that imposes them. Because if the U.S. government can impose tariffs and American taxpayers don't have to pay them, but the U.S. government gets all the money and all the money is coming from foreigners, well, hey, I mean, why not just jack them way up? Why not have the tariffs be 50%? I mean, the, the higher, the better, right? Let's have an even bigger windfall. And if tariffs are so great, why isn't every country just hit, you know putting tariffs on? If you can generate all this revenue from foreigners who don't even vote, right? If you can tax the world, Right. According to Navarro, America has the ability to tax every other country and they're just going to pay the tax and remit it to the U.S. government and American taxpayers aren't going to feel any of it. This is a bunch of nonsense. This is not what is going to happen. But this, you know, Navarro is advising Trump. I mean, maybe Trump actually believes this nonsense because his top advisor is spewing it. You know, I mean, does this guy really believe this or is he just saying this? I don't know. You know, as I've been saying, the best thing that China can do in particular is sell their U.S. treasuries. You know, I mean, I put this tweet out today, you know, a couple of tweets, but this is the best plan for China, right? China right now has over $3 trillion of foreign exchange reserves, at least $1 trillion of which is U.S. dollars invested in U.S. treasuries, right? U.S. treasuries have huge rallies, right? They have a great opportunity to sell an overpriced asset at a great price, right? Dump their treasuries, take a profit, right? They've got to have a profit on that position, right? You got a trillion dollars worth of treasuries, right? Sell. And then, of course, once you, you know, you sell your treasuries and you get dollars, right? Because that's what happens when you sell treasuries. Now you take those dollars and you dump them. And the dollar is very high. I mean, the trade-weighted index of the dollar is up near the high. So a great time to sell dollars, right? And now the Chinese government would get a uh, trillion dollars worth of yuan back, right? Well, now if they've got a trillion dollars worth of yuan sitting on their balance sheet, they can cut taxes. They don't need to collect as much revenue because they have this pile of cash. Now, even if they do that, their FX reserves would still be over $2 trillion, which is still going to leave them number one in the world. I mean, in number two, Japan is not even close. I mean, that's about 17 times the FX reserves the United States has. So even if they blow away a uh, trillion dollars worth of treasuries, 
and, and cut their reserves from $3 trillion to $2 trillion. At $2 trillion, their reserves will still be better than 17 times greater than the foreign exchange reserves of the United States, right? So now they have this huge amount of cash that they can give back to their own citizens. Let's say they just have a major tax cut across the board. They reduce corporate income taxes in China and they reduce personal income taxes. Well, now, you know, they kill two boards again with one stone because now the corporations make up for the fact that they're not making as much money on their exports because they're paying lower taxes. So if their profits are down, their tax rate is down. So maybe their after-tax rate would actually be higher uh, because of the tax cut. And if they cut taxes, income taxes, on the Chinese people, then their take-home pay is higher. And now the Chinese workers that have higher take-home pay, well, they can afford to buy some of the products that are not being sold to Americans. So now the, the Chinese get to produce the products, but then they all also get the enjoyment of consuming the products. I mean, that's that's a win-win again. It's better than, you know, letting the Americans, uh, you know, get that enjoyment. But then think about this. If the Chinese dump uh, a trillion dollars onto the Forex markets, what's going to happen to the dollar? The dollar is going to go down in value if you sell all those dollars, right? And what if the Federal Reserve, in order to prevent interest rates from spiking, what if the Federal Reserve decides to monetize that sale? What if the Federal Reserve buys the trillion dollars worth of treasuries from China, right? Or even if it's just China, you know, not rolling some over. And so now the Fed has got to step up and go back to quantitative uh, easing. But if the Fed decides to take another trillion of treasuries onto its balance sheet, bringing its balance sheet from about 3.8, 3.9 trillion to 4.8 trillion, 4.9 trillion, which would be higher than it was at its peak right before it started quantitative tightening. If they did that, they would have to create another trillion dollars out of thin air and dump that trillion dollars onto the Forex market too, right? Which would further suppress the value of the US dollar. And that is a win for China because if the dollar goes down, not only will the Chinese currency go up, but the currencies all over the world will go up. And so that means that consumers in other countries will now have greater purchasing power to buy Chinese goods, right? So now the Chinese will sell less stuff to Americans because the dollar is lower and Americans are poorer and Americans are having to pay a tariff that will you know, further increase the cost of buying these products. But instead of selling to Americans who have a depreciated currency and a tariff to pay, they can sell to other countries that don't have the tariffs and that have appreciating currencies. So now uh, they can afford more products. So again, China wins. This is the best thing they could do. It's a no-brainer. We'll see if this actually happens. But here we are, completely complacent. We think we got the Chinese by the balls when it's actually the other way around. But the question is, why did Trump do this? I mean, obviously, Donald Trump had to know when it's 7 o'clock and he's composing a tweet that he's going to slap tariffs on Mexico, he's got to know that the stock market's going to go down, right? I mean, and Donald Trump is all about the stock market going up, right? Yet he is doing everything he can to make the stock market go down. Why is he doing this? Well, I mean, obviously, I think there's a couple of reasons that Trump thinks the stock market going down now is a good thing because he wants the stock market to go back up going into the election, 
right, which is still, what, a couple years away. And so what he probably believes is if we get a sell-off now, none of this will matter on Election Day if we've had a big rally. And so how do we get the stock market to rally big going into the election, make it come down now so that it can rally from a lower point? The way to make the stock market go up near the election is for the stock market to go down now while you still have enough time for the market to recover. So two possibilities. One is if the stock market really goes down, that could be a way to force the Fed to cut interest rates, right? Because now the Fed is going to be worried. And also the Fed is worried about the global economy. The Fed just said that. The Fed just said yesterday, I mentioned earlier on the podcast, that one reason why they may cut rates is if there's weakness in the global economy that they feel may spill over into the United States. Well, how does Donald Trump get the Fed to worry about the global economy or have the global economy be the excuse that the Fed just said they're looking for? Well, more tariffs, blow up another trade deal, right? Because one of the reasons that the markets were rallying for a while is because everybody thought we were going to have a trade deal. Got a great trade deal with Mexico. We're going to get a great trade deal with China. Everything was great. Well, that all that stuff is falling apart. Everything that the markets were betting on has turned out not to be true. So now the markets are tanking. Look at the price of oil, right? One of the things that if you want to get the Fed to lower interest rates, and if one of the things the Fed is saying is that they're looking at inflation, well, if you can get the price of oil to come way down, well, that's going to get the Fed to think, wait a minute, we're not going to hit our inflation targets. Oil price coming down, the Fed's thinking, oh, deflation, right? So if you can get everybody worried about the global economy, if you can start you know, ratcheting up the rhetoric on tariffs, well, then people are going to be thinking about global recession, oil prices are going to come down, and now you've got both of the Fed's criteria. You've got uh, the Fed worried that we're not going to hit their inflation target, and you got the Fed worried about global growth. Now, what Trump obviously wants the Fed to do is to hurry up and cut rates because the best scenario, according to Trump, is we get the Fed to cut rates before the U.S. economy officially enters recession. And if the Fed does that preemptively, then maybe we can postpone the recession until after the next election. So Trump's goal right now is to create some fear, to create some chaos, to get people to be worried about the global economy so the Fed will do exactly what Donald Trump wants the Fed to do, which is lower interest rates. Then Trump believes if the Fed does lower interest rates, then the stock market is going to boom. We're going to make new highs. Then we're going to avoid a recession. The economy is going to get another boost from that artificial stimulus, and we're going to make it to 2020 and he'll be able to get reelected. So what he's trying to do is box the Fed into a corner so that uh, Jerome Powell will do exactly for him what he accused Janet Yellen of doing for Barack Obama. Do political things, just slash interest rates, even though we're not in a U.S. recession yet, and even though he keeps talking about how we have the greatest economy in the history of the world, to get the Fed to cut interest rates anyway. And I think it's going to work. The Fed is going to cut interest rates. The problem is the plan is probably not going to work because I don't think the rate cuts are going to produce the results that the president expects and that he hopes for. Because I don't think this next round of monetary 
a stimulus is going to stimulate. I think it's going to be a sedative. I think it's going to create an overdose. I think the dollar is going to tank because again, 25, 50, 75 basis points won't do it. The Fed's going to have to go to zero. The Fed's going to have to go back to QE. And I think when they do that, the dollar's going to tank. Consumer prices are going to soar. And I think long-term interest rates are going to rise. Even though the Fed is doing QE, rates are going to rise, particularly for corporations, particularly in the junk bond market, you know, the high yield market. Rates are going to go up and it is going to make this recession much worse. We're not going to have the stabilizers of falling interest rates and you know falling inflation to cushion the blow. We're going to have a recession where rates are rising, prices are rising, and that's going to put the squeeze on the economy. It's going to make it that much worse for the people who are unemployed or the people whose incomes are dropping during the recession because their cost of living is going to be rising, especially if they have debt that has any kind of adjustable rate. That's going to be moving higher. So that's going to be like a tax increase on the economy during a recession. And so I think that even if Trump gets exactly what he wants from the Fed, it's not going to be enough uh, to buy him a, a second term. Now, if I'm wrong about that, right, it is possible that we can delay this until after Trump gets reelected. I, I think it's not the most probable scenario. I think that the recession is still going to be here when uh, the voters go to the polls in 2020. But if I'm wrong on that, and if another round of quantitative easing and rate cuts can produce a phony recovery long enough to get Trump in for a second term, God help us on that, because then it's really going to hit the fan on, on, on him in his second term. And we may never have a shot of uh, getting rid of the socialists who will come in in 2024. I mean, we got to get the socialists in there uh, in 2020, so at least we could blame a lot of it uh, on them. But if Trump you know, is there for eight years, then he's going to own this whole thing. But if the Fed is successful in buying Trump a second term because they can get the markets back to new highs and they can delay the onset of this recession, which, by the way, was already delayed by the election of Trump. I've said many times on this podcast, had Trump not won, had Hillary won, we would have been in a recession in 2016. But because Trump won and created a bunch of false optimism and got the tax cuts, we kicked the uh, recession can down the road uh, for a few years. And maybe we can kick it down for a couple more uh, with the Fed going back to zero and doing more QE. But I do expect if that happens, the dollar is going to tank. Uh, gold is going to go up. And even if the U.S. stock market goes up, foreign stocks are going to go up much more. Emerging market stocks are going to go up much more. Gold stocks are going to go up. They're going to go ballistic. And in fact, you know, emerging market stocks did really well today. A lot of emerging market stocks were up today, even though the Dow was down 350. Gold stocks had a really nice day today. Uh, you know, so we're seeing these foreign stocks now outperforming the U.S. stocks. That's going to continue. That will accelerate if the Fed goes back to zero and does more quantitative easing. So even if we can create a, a phony enough recovery to get Trump reelected, that's not going to undermine my investment strategy. I think my investment strategy is going to thrive under that environment because all the money that's going to have to be printed to try to reflate this bubble, right, is going to cause 
the dollar to tank and foreign stocks and gold and gold stocks to go way up much more uh, than the U.S. stock market. But I think the strategy will do even better if he fails. If the, if the Fed cannot stop the recession, if the U.S. economy goes into recession despite 0% rates and quantitative easing, then the dollar is going through the floor, right? Then gold goes through the roof. Oh, another crazy thing. I forgot to point this out. Just another ridiculous thing that Peter Navarro said. He said that in addition to the fact that the Chinese and the Mexicans are going to pay the cost of the tariffs, he also said that even if the U.S. ends up importing less stuff because of the tariffs, right? Because the tariffs make the cost of imports higher, right? So China and Mexico don't absorb the tariffs, right? Even if that happens, he said that it's still going to be good for the U.S. because if we have lower trade deficits, that just means we're going to make all the stuff ourselves, right? We're just going to produce uh, the stuff here instead of buying it from China or buying it from Mexico, and that's going to make our economy stronger, that it's going to be a lot better for the American economy to produce and manufacture domestically. Because after all, we make the stuff ourselves, right? We get the jobs ourselves, right? Our workers, uh, you know, get employed making the stuff and we're more self-sufficient. It's better, you know, strategically, you know, not to be dependent or relying on foreigners for manufacturing and for a supply chain, which can certainly be cut off in times of war. So he made a lot of points as to why the U.S. economy would be far stronger if we manufactured ourselves which is all true, but the problem is we can't do it. Again, what Peter Navarro is completely overlooking, and maybe the president too, is we can't do it. I mean, not right away. If we had to replace the goods that we are importing from Mexico and China and the rest of the world, if we had to produce that stuff ourselves, there would be a massive recession in order to make that possible. Because where are the factories going to come from? Where are the supply chains going to come from? Where are the trained workers going to come from? All of this is going to take money that we don't have. We don't have the savings. We're not going to be getting it from abroad anymore. We're going to have to have the domestic savings. But our pool of savings is very shallow. So how are we going to finance all of the infrastructure, all the capex that would need to go into reindustrializing uh, the U.S. economy and retraining the American workforce. That's going to cost a fortune and it's going to take a long time and we don't even have the money to do it. And think about this. If we are doing this transition where Americans stop spending and stop borrowing, right, because now we have to use our, our, our money we have to, to make the capital investments, right, so you can't spend and invest at the same time. So as Americans stop spending and all these service sector jobs go away, right, because now, you know, they, they're unsustainable, and we have this big increase in unemployment, and we go into this massive recession as everybody, you know, stops spending. When you have the GDP is 70% people spending money, and now they have to stop spending because there's nothing to buy anyway because we're not importing it, we have this huge recession, and the deficits, the budget deficits right now are $1.5 a year, and during a massive recession, they're going to go to 3 or $4 trillion a year. How is the government going to finance that? Remember, they can't get the money from China anymore because China doesn't have to recycle its trade surpluses. It doesn't have them anymore. So we're not going to be importing capital from the rest of the world. Where's the U.S. government going to get all this money to finance its deficits? How's it going to get it from the U.S. economy? The U.S. economy needs its savings to build these factories, to train these workers. How can we build all the factories, train all, train all the workers, and 
finance the budget deficits. We can't. So the government would have to slash spending dramatically, get rid of agencies and departments, cut Social Security, cut Medicare. All of these things would have to happen. Now, of course, all that is good stuff. That's great. That's great stuff. And that needs to happen. But it's going to be very painful when it happens. It's not going to be, you know, like this nirvana, like Peter Navarro is talking about how it's going to be great. You know, it may be great in, in a generation, but it's going to be very painful journey to get from where we are now to get to the promised land of self-sufficiency to return to a manufacturing economy like we used to be. You know, that is one hell of a journey that nobody is prepared to take. But meanwhile, with all this debt, how can we do it? Right. Obviously, the printing presses would be running on overdrive. Right. Because now the federal the federal government would have to finance its deficits with pure inflation. It would have to print trillions of dollars to finance the deficits. And while it was doing that, it would be destroying the value of whatever savings we had. So to the extent that we needed to use our savings to retool and build factories and train workers, it's all going to be wiped out to inflation. So there is no way to do this. We are highly indebted. We don't have the resources. We don't have the money. This is an impossible thing to do without massive uh, declines in the size of government. Basically, the government would have to default on its debts. That's the only way to really do this. So we're talking about you know, a, a cataclysmic uh, economic event, which is necessary and would be required in order to accomplish it. But Navarro just brushes over all that and simply makes the statement of, hey, we're just going to make all the stuffs ourselves and everything is going to be great. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense uh, that you get in Washington, D.C. This is the kind of idiotic advice that is being given to the president of the United States. While I am on the subject of idiotic advice, I, uh, I just posted the Bitcoin versus gold debate on my YouTube channel that I, I did at the SALT conference. So you can check it out. It's about a half hour of, uh, of footage. I think there's a little bit at the end where I was saying something that kind of got cut off. So I, mean, I don't know, the, the recording kind of broke up, but it, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, you get almost everything that I said. So it's on my, on my YouTube channel now. And, you know, oh, one of the other things, too, I meant to mention on, on Bitcoin is a lot of people now who are going on television and, 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 and talking about Bitcoin and why it's rallying. And by the way, Bitcoin, I think yesterday, got above 9,000. So that was a new high uh, for the year, over 9,000. And then I think within a few hours, it was all the way back down to 8,000. So it was a pretty big drop. But as we speak, I think it's recovered and Bitcoin's back to about 8,500. So it's still, you know, trading in a pretty, pretty strong upward trend. Uh, although there has been some some volatile days, but the trend is still up on Bitcoin. Again, I still think this is a bear market rally. I still think the high is in. I don't think we're going to take out 20,000. So at some point, one of these big declines is going to turn into a much bigger decline. But as you know, people are coming on television and explaining why Bitcoin is going up. One of the reasons people are offering is China. They're saying that people in China who are worried about the yuan going down because of a trade war. And of course, the real solution for China is for the yuan to go up. But everybody talks about how the yuan is going to go down. And so they're saying people are worried about yuan going down in China. And so as a safe haven, because they're worried about the yuan going down, they are buying Bitcoin. Uh, which is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, anybody who is worried about the yuan going down, I mean, first of all, how much could it go down? 2%, 5%, I mean, 10%, maybe. I mean, that would be historic. I mean, the yuan doesn't move that much, right? So 
according to these guys, people who are worried that the Chinese yuan may drop a few percentage points, they're putting all their money into Bitcoin, which has just tripled in price, which could lose half its value overnight, which has lost in just recent days, just yesterday, 10% in a few hours. Or remember, it was down, I think, a couple weeks ago, it was down 20% uh, inside of one day. I mean, nobody who is nervous about losing purchasing power in their yuan savings, where the yuan maybe goes down a few percent, nobody is buying Bitcoin as a safe haven because they're worried about a small loss of the value of yuan. But now they'd have to worry about an even bigger loss in the value of Bitcoin. No, if any Chinese are buying Bitcoin, and some of them might, they are not doing it because they think they're buying a safe haven. If they want a safe haven, they're buying gold. Or they're buying, you know, dollars if they still think the dollar is safe. The last thing that anyone's going to do who wants a safe haven is buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin is for somebody who wants risk. If you're buying Bitcoin, you're buying it because you think it's going to go way up, right? So if you're buying something that you think could double or triple, then you're not buying a safe haven, right? If that's what you're, you're just getting into something that is speculative and it's risky. So this idea that it's safe haven buying from the Chinese, this is nonsense. Now, maybe it's also partially risky, a wishful thinking on the part of the Bitcoin crowd that wants everybody to believe that Bitcoin is the new gold, that it's gold 2.0, right? And so people are buying uh, Bitcoin instead of gold as a safe haven. That's not what's happening. I can assure you of that. In fact, another one of these uh, nuts, I was listening to this guy he was interviewed on Kitco. You can see his inter interview on, on YouTube. James um, Altucher, I think is his name. Uh, guy's got crazy hair. That's So if you look for it, you look on YouTube, you'll see the interview. But he, the, everything he said was even crazier than, than the guy's hair. I mean, this guy, pretty much almost every word out of his mouth was either incorrect or just an outright lie. I mean, one one of the funny things he said at the very end, he finished it up because you know Kit goes about gold, and they asked him about gold. And his closing comment, he said, "Look, gold is just a rock, but Bitcoin has real value, right? Bitcoin has real value, and gold is just a rock. First of all, gold's not even a rock; it's a metal, right? So he doesn't even know that. But even a rock has more real value than Bitcoin. I mean, I could at least use a rock. I mean, I could use it as a paper rate. Wait, I I could throw it." I, maybe if it's flat, I can skip it along the water, right? Or you can, you know, you can collect rocks. I mean, sometimes they're pretty. You can paint them. I mean, rocks actually have value, right? Bitcoin doesn't have any value. Yet this guy was saying that Bitcoin has all this real value and gold has none because it's just a rock. But that's not even the most idiotic thing that he said. Probably the most idiotic thing that he said was that he thought Bitcoin could go to $1 million a coin by 2020. That's next year. $1 million. Now, that's why all these idiots are hodling, or they're not all idiots. I mean, some of them are very smart people, so I don't, you know, I don't want to say they're idiots, but they're, what they believe is idiotic. Not that they're necessarily idiots themselves, but they're believing something idiotic. But because people believe that Bitcoin is going to go to a million, they're not going to sell. And that's what a lot of people want people to believe. They don't want anybody selling. They want to sell, right? So if you've got a bunch of Bitcoin that you want to unload, you got to make sure that other people aren't unloading theirs, right? In fact, you need new buyers. So you got to keep this fantasy, oh, a million dollars of Bitcoin. It's going to a million dollars. So don't sell it now because you're going to miss out on all this money if you sell, right? That's the greed that they need to keep this thing going. But even crazier than that, he said that if Bitcoin went to a million by 2020, it would still be a bargain. 
Like, it's, you're still getting a good deal. If you paid a million dollars for a Bitcoin, you were still getting a bargain. You were buying it cheap. And, and the way he rationalized that is he tried to compare Bitcoin to the current value of all the currencies in the world, right? All the fiat currencies, all the dollars, all the euros, all the, you know, the, 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 the yen, everything. And basically what he said is he thinks ultimately that Bitcoin is going to replace all of that, that all those fiat currencies are going to go away, right? And everybody's going to start using Bitcoin all over the world, right? Bitcoin is going to be money everywhere, right? Uh, and all these governments are going to give up their own sovereignty when it comes to creating a currency, right? They're all going to give up their central banks, right? Which, again, wouldn't be a bad thing, but they're all going to do it in favor of Bitcoin, which is completely impossible, is never going to happen. Yet this guy is actually talking as if it's even possible when it's completely impossible, never going to happen. But this is what he thinks. And this is how he's got getting his million dollar per Bitcoin price target and how he thinks it's a bargain. But this is the kind of nonsense that you get to try to justify this thing and to keep this bubble going. One final uh, thought that I wanted to uh, use to end this this podcast. Just personally, I am going through a bit of a of a tax problem. Hopefully, I will get a positive uh, resolution. But I want to bring it up because I want to talk about another thing that the government does that is completely unconstitutional. Right. So, I put my home into a trust back in 2014. And so basically, I you know transferred the title of the of uh, the LLC that owns the house because the house was owned by an LLC, and I transferred that into a trust. You know, kind of an, an estate planning uh, move. A lot of people do that. A lot of people that have assets put them in a trust. This is a house, and I've since put a lot of other assets into trust. But this particular trust is a foreign trust, uh, and so there are other benefits uh, that come with uh, having a foreign trust rather than a domestic trust. Again, it's a very common. Uh, thing for people to do. And the trust uh, does not actually pay any taxes because the whole thing passes through to me. Uh, so whatever income the trust uh, earns is the tax falls to me. And, and, and so it just it just passes right through to me. But you still have to file a tax return for the trust, even though it's never going to owe any money, even though I'm filing my own tax return and declaring any income in the trust as my own and paying the taxes, you still have to file uh, the the return because it's it's foreign now apparently I didn't do that in time I'm you know I I was due on a certain date and my accountants filed it late or maybe somebody didn't realize I thought the I, I was I changed accountants in 2014 I was doing a lot of stuff and maybe the new accountants thought the old accountants did it and the old accountants you know well left it to the new account but whatever reason is I ended up filing that form late now remember I don't owe any taxes right? Zero taxes were owed, no interest, no penalties. Well, I finally got a penalty letter from the IRS and they said, hey, you paid this late. Um, you know, you need to pay the penalty and, you know, here's an envelope. Just put your check in and mail it in. And so the penalty for filing late was $200,000, $200,000 for filing a form late where I didn't even owe any taxes, didn't owe any interest or penalties. That's the fee. Now, initially, you know, my accountants wrote a letter and said, look, you know, to try to get them to waive the penalty or expunge it. And they finally wrote back and they said, um, no, um, ignorance is no excuse. If you didn't know about it, whatever, uh, you still got to pay it. Again, here's an envelope. Put your check in for $200,000 and mail it in. 
So now I've got to appeal that. Uh, and you know, if I appeal that and I lose, then what the supposed remedy is, is I actually pay the $200,000 to the IRS. And then if I want, I can go to tax court and challenge it there. And then if I lose that, I can go into the federal court system. But my, my rationale for challenging it, and, and first of all, there are some rules that the IRS has where, you know, if you overlook something, honestly, that if it's your first time doing it, that they could waive the penalty. But what I mentioned to, to my accountant, I said, you know, have you ever, you ever heard of the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution? And he really wasn't familiar with it. And he's a lawyer, too. He's a tax lawyer. So most lawyers don't know much about the Constitution, which is unfortunate. But so I read him the Eighth Amendment. And the Eighth Amendment is pretty short. I'm going to read it to you on, on right now. It says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So there, no excessive fines can be imposed. So the Eighth Amendment says the United States government cannot impose an excessive fine. Now, if a $200,000 fine for filing a form late is not excessive, I don't know what is. I mean, it's not even like the IRS told me, hey, you forgot to file this form. I filed it and then they got it late and then they sent me the bill for filing it late. So they didn't even know that it was filed late. I sent it in because my accountant said, oh, realize that, wait a minute, I don't think we filed this form. So they went and filed it and now I get a $200,000 tax which is so ludicrous for filing a form late. I mean, first of all, the average American, I think the average income for an American is what, $40,000 a year, something like that. So this is five times the average income of an American is the fine for filing a form late. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, how could that not be excessive, right? I mean, it's like if you, you know, got, were speeding and a cop pulled you over and he's like, okay, you know, you were speeding. Here's your ticket. It's $200,000. I mean, you get, is someone going to pay that? Like, that's not excessive? This is a form, right? Filing a form late. I mean, sometimes you can say, well, the penalty is a percentage of the tax that you owe. But I didn't owe any tax, right? So it's just a form. It's just in letting the government know that I, I put this asset into this trust. And I let them know late. Right, probably within the same year. I just missed the deadline, so they I, I officially informed them that a house that used to be in the name of an LLC in the U.S. is now in the name of a foreign trust. But the house hasn't moved, right? And you know, there's no rental income associated with the house. There's there's and even if there was any income, I would have paid the tax on my personal return. But there was no tax to pay because there was no income on the asset. It just sat in this trust. And I just informed the IRS about it late, not even knowing that I had to do it because I rely on professional accountants to file my tax. I pay these guys a lot of money to file my taxes. They're very complicated every year. Fortunately, since I live in Puerto Rico now, my tax bills themselves are, are, are very low. But it costs me a fortune uh, to, to pay those low taxes because I have all kinds of things I have to file. A lot of it has to do with my ownership of foreign assets, you know, Europe Pacific Bank and, and different things that are overseas really complicates uh, my, my returns. But if the IRS can simply impose a $200,000 fine because a form was filed late, right? If that is not an excessive fine, then I don't know what is. So what I told my account is if we can't get this removed, 
right? Just based on the fact that it's ridiculous and there was no ill, Ill will on my part. Maybe it was an oversight somewhere along the way uh, with a form that I didn't even realize had to be filed on an entity that doesn't even have a tax liability that they can forgive it. Because ever since then, I've been filing on time. So I filed for 2015, I filed for 2016, for 2017, and now I'm filing for 2018. So all the other returns have come in on time. Just this first one, that's the first time I actually had to file it because that's when I set the, the trust up uh, and I missed the first one. But I said, if if we lose on you know these appeals within the IRS, if they're going to refuse this, then I want to challenge this. I want to take this you know, I actually have to pay the thing, though. I got to write a $200,000 check to the IRS because the way the IRS makes it in tax court, you got to pay and then sue to get your money back, which, again, is a violation of due process, which is I think that's the Fourth Amendment. Right. They, they're taking my money without due process. They should have to sue me. They should have to prove in court that they're entitled to this $200,000 penalty. But the way everything works with the IRS is that you got even if you think they're wrong and they don't owe the money, you got to pay it anyway. And then you got to go into their rig court, which is really like a star chamber, right? Tax court. And then you got to prove your innocence, right? Tax court, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. You're the moving party. And now the burden of proof is on you that you don't owe the money. What due process would be, according to the Constitution, is that the IRS thinks you owe money. They have to sue you. They have to take you to court. And they have the burden of proving that you owe the money. Instead, in tax court, you have to prove that you don't owe it, which turns jurisprudence on its head. But that would be my first step. I would have to take this thing to tax court and say, this is unconstitutional. It's a violation of the, the Eighth Amendment, and you got to strike down this, this fine. But I, I don't think the tax court's going to do that. I think they're going to say, we don't give a damn about the Constitution. This is tax court. Uh, you lose. But then, after I lose in tax court, I can appeal this case to a district federal court. And if I lose there, I could take it all the way up to the Supreme Court. But if the Supreme Court actually granted certiorari on my case, but maybe even an appellate court, I don't see how any competent court can validate a $200,000 fine on a form being late right? and not saying that is excessive within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment because they don't specify what is excessive, right? So you have to just, you know, decide, right? It's like, you know, pornography, right? The court says we can't define it, but we know it when we see it. Well, this is obscene, right? A $200,000 fine on a late form where no taxes are owed and no income was generated is the most obscene, excessive thing I've ever heard of. And, and so I, I, I would like to prevail. If I, if I, and if I can prevail on that in, in the court, well, then the, whole, the fines would be thrown out, right? Then, no, then nobody would ever be able to get hit with them. The government couldn't impose uh, such a ridiculous fine. So part of me kind of hopes that that I lose so I can take this case up to the Supreme Court and hopefully win for the American public. But that's just a small part of me because I really don't want to write a $200,000 check and then have to pay the legal bill of, let, of, of taking this thing all the way up to the Supreme Court. You know, that's the kind of stuff my dad did. He got himself wrapped up in all these legal battles. Now, I think this is more of an open and shut case than a lot of the, 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 the constitutional arguments my father made. Uh, but I saw, you know, how much time and effort he wasted uh, uh, you know, on that pursuit. And I, I would prefer uh, not to have to do the same thing myself. 